Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Barry Jenkins' new drama, If Beale Street Could Talk. Based on the acclaimed novel by James Baldwin, the film tells the story of Tish, a Harlem woman who strives to prove the innocence of her fiancé while pregnant with their firstborn child. In addition to If Beale Street Could Talk, Mr. Jenkins' credits include the feature Medicine for Melancholy and episodes of the television series Dear White People. He was nominated for the 2016 DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film and the Academy Award for Best Director for his film Moonlight. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Jenkins spoke with director Paul Thomas Anderson about filming If Beale Street Could Talk. During their conversation, Mr. Jenkins discusses how he cast the film's two leads, Kiki Lane and Stefan James, the careful attention he paid to creating the Harlem portrayed in the novel, and how he directs the immersive close-ups of his films. Thank you very much. Um, hi. Hello, Mr. Anderson. Um, we've only spoken on the telephone, so this is actually our first time meeting. Yes. Right in front of me. um, but you told me on the telephone that this is actually born out of the same kind of insanely creative session that Moonlight is born out of, that you kind of had twins at the same time. This one came afterwards. Mm-hmm. That's fucking nuts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, was, it was a nuts, or a fucking nuts uh, summer, I gotta say. Um, it was the summer of 2013, and I was just, I don't know, I was just fed up with myself, with everything. And my producer, Adela Romanski, uh, on both this film and Moonlight, she was fed up too. And she said, well, what do you need to do in order to create? And I was like, oh, I need to just plenty out of my ass. I need to go to Europe for like two months and just have no distractions. Yeah. And she got together uh, $8,000 and sent me off to, uh, to Europe. I had a round-trip ticket to Brussels. And the idea was actually just about this film. I wanted to adapt uh, this novel, and Moonlight was the thing I took just to get me writing. I thought, oh, I'll start working on this play adaptation, and then I'll get to the thing I really want to do, which is this novel. Um, but when you don't have any friends, you don't have any, any real money, you don't know anybody, you don't speak the language, you kind of just like work. And so 10 days later, uh, Moonlight was done, the first draft, and then I took a trip to a train to Berlin and wrote the first draft of this. Not bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, looking back on it, not bad yeah, at all. Yeah. They're not all like that. <laughs> no, trust me, I, I, I've tried to replicate that, and no. <laughs> yeah. Um, but w- So then go back to your relationship to Baldwin and, and this book, because this, I don't know everything about him, I don't know much about him, but this is later in his life, this book, right? Yeah, it's later in his life and kind of after the the literary glow on him as a fiction writer right. had kind of dimmed, um, I'll say, uh, honestly. Um, and so even myself, being someone who considered themselves like a Baldwin fanatic, I hadn't read this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd read Giovanni's Room, The Fire Next Time, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain, and uh, Another Country, 
And a friend of mine who works in film, a sound designer named Julia Sharar, she sent me this book and said, you know, I don't think you've read this, and I think you should, because I think there's, there's an amazing film in it, and you'd be the perfect fit for it. This is pre-Moonlight, so it's when I've yeah. only done this $12,000 uh, feature budget um, called Medicine for Melancholy. It's the only thing I made at that point. Thank you. Jenkins aficionados. I know. Like, <laughs> all 12 of the people who saw that movie are in this audience. Um, but when I read it, um, I saw the things that first uh, uh, led me to fall in love with Mr. Baldwin, which was this very sensual, uh, poetic voice that dealt with romance, you know, yeah. and relationships uh, in a very sensual uh, way, very visceral. But then this other voice that was just as viscerally uh, 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 attuned to systemic injustice and the way American society has played a, a large role in the degradation of black folks, uh, the lives of black folks in America. And they were fused really organically in this novel, which I would say is not my favorite James Baldwin novel, but as a visual storyteller, it was the one that I felt had the richest material for me to mine. Right, right. Sometimes it's working not with the best mat source material that they could have to make, exactly. adapt a film. Um, so I can imagine that is the, does the book follow a similar structure in terms of flashing back that you are kind of within this relationship in, in past and present? And it, it, it does, but it's not exactly the same. I mean, the right. book has maybe in some ways an even more radical structure mm -hmm. uh, than the film. Uh, they're both nonlinear, but we didn't, we couldn't follow the same nonlinear principles as the book, so it's a bit different. Of course. Right. Um, okay, so the romance at the center. Um, where did you find these two faces, these two remarkable young actors? Um, right. I mean, let's start with them, and then we'll get to everybody else, because it is like every time somebody appears on screen, you wonder, like, who the hell is that, and how can I see more of them, you know? Um, so just start with these two young actors. Yeah, you know, the, the biggest thing for me when I first read the novel was it was clear to me that Tish and Fani are soulmates, and... Um, I'd seen a few depictions of young black people as soulmates, but not many. And I certainly hadn't seen many um, in cinema. And so right away in the casting, I felt like immediately when the movie starts, because you, you know, it takes 20 hours to read the book, it takes two hours to, to, to watch yeah. the film, you need to know these two people are soulmates. And so that was the primary thing I was looking for. And it had to be in, in the faces and the gestures and yeah. not so much in the dialogue. Something you can feel, you know, that's a different kind of belief than something you're told and you believe. So, uh, you know, when I write the scripts, I very rarely see an actor in my head. I think casting, you know, and especially watching your work is a meritocracy. And I was just hoping someone would walk through the door and show me who Tish is. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kiki Lane, who plays uh, Tish in this film, is her first uh, film role ever, which is insane, because she has to carry the whole damn film. Um, you know, in the, in the movie, uh, Tish speaks with two voices. You know, in scene, she's like this very young girl. She's experiencing yeah. just about everything for the first time. But then in the voiceover, she's speaking from uh, a woman who's evolved through these experience. The girl has become a woman. Yeah. And so I was looking for someone who had that duality within them. And Kiki Lane uh, showed up very late in the casting process. And she just had all those things. And then with Stefan James, um, I'd seen him in Selma and I'd seen him in Race. And I actually didn't think he was perfect for the film mm -hmm. because he's so just like very, I mean, he played Jesse Damn Owens, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was almost like too refined for me, for what I wanted for this character. But, you know, I think casting's a meritocracy. And he like flew to LA, because he's from Toronto, and he's like, I will, I will put every scene in this film on tape, is what right. he said to me. And I said, that's unnecessary. Right. However, I saw the tape you sent, I got some thoughts, and he went off without me, and he retaped. And 
every note I gave him, he took it. And then we put them together for a chemistry read, and it was clear, okay, these two young people are soulmates. And then it became about building these families around them. Right, was okay. the casting process. So as president of the Regina fan club, um, president, I'm a card-carrying member, have been for a while. I mean, um, and by the way, the scene of the year, we talked about this briefly, um, by far, by, by a mile, is, um, is her going down to Puerto Rico and putting the wig on and taking the wig off. That's like one for the history books. Um, it's really, really so moving. Um, yep. you know, wh when, did she, when did she come into your mind as, as that's going to be my mama? So, so once, once we cast, uh, and that's exactly how it was in my right, head, you know, uh, Once we cast uh, uh, Kiki and Stefan, then it was about building these families okay. around them. And for me, there's this idea in the book that's very clear where Joseph and Sharon, uh, Tisha's parents, they're basically like almost these mirrors of, of Tish and Fani. Yeah. They were the same age when they met. They were the same age when they got married. And so I was looking for someone who could very clearly be the matriarch, be a generation beyond, right. but still in some ways look almost young enough to be this woman's sister, you know, to be this girl's sister. And I remember watching Regina King growing up on 227 and then watching her in all these movies and TV shows and just always feeling this connection to her. You know, she's like yeah. my sister mother kind of. Yeah. And uh, and once we hit on her in my head, I was like, okay, it's it's her and nobody else. Yeah. And uh, and thankfully, she loved the book. Everybody in the film loved the book. You know, they were really diligent about the source material being a part of their their characters. And once I had the first Skype with her, and she gave me so much shit, you know, about the script and what was what was not what was in the book and not in the film and all these things. And and I said to her something Mahershala said to me on Moonlight, which was. It's not in the film, but it's in the performance. Mm -hmm. And once I said that, she was like, okay, cool, I'm with you. Right. And we went down the road. Um, just so the, 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 the wig is her idea, actually. Fantastic. Well, because in the, in the book, in the book is a shawl. And I was like, we were both having the Skype. She was in Mexico, I was in Montreal. And I was like, yeah, and then this thing. She's like, what about this thing with the shawl? I was like, yeah, I know. You know, we're, def we're definitely going to do it, but I'm trying to figure out a way to ground it. She was like, I think it should be a wig. Mm. And I was like, you know what? Yes, I yeah. think it should be a wig. And yeah. the whole thing just came alive. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and 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 Daddy, and just talk a little bit about him very briefly. Yeah, yeah. So Coleman Domingo. I mean, both the dads in the film, Coleman Domingo and Michael Beach, yeah, both, are just yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's a. You know, with this film, what what I really loved was once we found uh, Kiki and Stefan. Then it was about who are the actors that just feel like. Um, like these families yeah. in a certain way. And Annapurna was so great because it wasn't about trying to find like the biggest and brightest faces. It was about building a family. Right. And between Anjanou Ellis, who plays Stefan's mom, you know, Michael Beach, who plays his dad, and then Coleman Domingo, I just felt two things. One, I wanted to keep the language of the novel intact. And some of the language can it can break in the wrong hands. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt like all these actors could do a really good job of preserving the language, but making it almost lived in, which I think contemporary, makes it contemporary without updating it to 2018. Yep. And, uh, and Michael Beach, which is uh, phenomenal with that, Coleman Domingo can pronounce, he could read the telephone book, and it'll sound like yeah. you're listening to like, like R&B from the 1970s, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and then once we had solidified that element, then we got uh, Tiana Paris and we moved on to building out the satellite characters. Right, fantastic, really fantastic. Um, um, we got so much to cover. We just before we go off, before we go off the actors and, and the wig, mm -hmm. this is like, um, 
the best hair and makeup I've seen in a movie. I mean, her hair alone, alone you know, some of those. Um, who, who, did, who, did, who, did, who did that and who did you work with there? Because those people, they never get a Yeah, so this, this is a cool bit of trivia. So one, uh, the novel is so detailed about every damn thing. You know, the hair is described, the clothing is described, just so many lush, rich details. I think Mr. Baldwin was writing from his memory, you know, of mm -hmm. his childhood. He wrote this uh, in France, you know, but I think he was trying to be really diligent about reflecting the neighborhood he grew up in. So, so detailed. And, you know, I remember I was on the awards circuit with uh, Moonlight and Jeff Nichols' film Loving uh, was, was touring as well. And so I kept meeting the people who worked on Loving and I remember thinking, I love what they did with Ruth's uh, hair in this yeah. film. And so I met this guy named Kenneth Walker, who's like, he's in his 80s, he's been in the industry forever. However, his first job in the industry was on a show called 227, which was also Regina King's first job in the industry. Right. And so this movie's like a reunion uh, for the two of them. And he just had such a good time because I told him, there's this scene, Kenneth, where it's like the blackest scene ever in the world. And when, these mom, when the mom walks in the front door, her hair has got to be popping. Uh -huh. It's the scene with the two families in the beginning. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And he just he just got it. And he has such a great time. And you're right. I, I love to shout him out. Kenneth Walker, amazing Fantastic. man. Fantastic. Yeah. I spilled water all over myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just, just talk for everybody about two of your clearly sort of greatest co-conspirators, the cinematographer and um, the composer, yeah. who are people that you've been with from the beginning. Yeah, right. uh, so, so James Laxton is the cinematographer on this film, Moonlight. Right. Thank you, shout it out for him. Uh, and Metis for Melancholy. I mean, we went to film school together, so I've known the guy since I was like 20 years old. And we just have a way of working at this point, almost like a, like a, a second, uh, second language that we share. And we always approach the films not from the prism of what's the genre or what's the story form, but about the characters. Yeah. And I think, especially writing these two at the same time, you know, I feel like Moonlight is about Chiron's consciousness, mm -hmm. his state of consciousness, and The Old Street is about Tisha's state of consciousness. And it's really nice when you work uh, from that prism because it opens up so many of these aesthetic things that aren't grounded in the melodrama or in the queer coming of age film. They're grounded in the way the characters feel. Yeah. And James is really good about that. And the same thing with Nicholas Bertel, who's the composer on Moonlight and also the composer on this, um, which I didn't realize it, but we were at, we were doing something like this, Nick and I, in Belgium for like the, the World Composer Awards, whatever. And uh, afterwards we came off stage and a composer in the audience said, so am I to understand from your talk that you never heard any of Nick's music before you guys worked together on Moonlight? Never occurred to me. I was like, no, actually, I hadn't heard any of his music before we did Moonlight. But there was a vibe, you know? Yeah. I had a meeting with the guy. He understood me. I understood him. He understood the film. That was all it was. Yeah. And I feel like with James and myself, with the editors, with everyone, we just approach the films as though the past doesn't exist. And whatever the vibe is on that piece is what's going to rule the day. Right, right. I mean, the balance between the photography and the music and, and everything is this, you know, there's this doomed nature to everything, mm -hmm. but you, you, you never shied away from giving us the romance so beautifully, you know, yeah. that it's beautiful when it needs to be. Yeah, and, um, and, and this one I felt that was, that was really essential. Yeah. I felt like it was absolutely essential. I think it's what Mr. Baldwin is doing in the book. You know, the, the lives of black folks in America has always been rooted, you know, from the very beginning of our history here in some element of... Uh, despair, degradation, I mean, literally torture. Uh, and yet there's always been love, yeah. and always been joy, and always been family. And I feel like in this book, I think Baldwin is making a thesis statement that that, that love, that joy, 
is a life force, you know, and it's the reason why we've been able to survive despite this degradation. So it's really important to me to lean in to that yeah. life force, that love and romance, and not feel like, you know, as a fancy director, you know, I can't be sentimental, you know, about two That's people right. being soulmates. You know, when the movie wants to soar, when she's thinking of these better times, the movie's kind of damn sore. So yeah, yeah. Um, how, what kind of what kind of dialogue did you have in your mind with with Baldwin? You know, in terms of being being respectful to this book, but also knowing I also got to make a movie and there's things that I have to do to change it. Did you have to go to work every day and have a little dialogue in your head with him and say, sorry about this one, but I'm going to have to cut it or you any know, of that kind I, of stuff? I, I, I did because I, I like to be really loose on set. You know, yeah. I think when you get there on the day, what you're doing on the day rules the damn day. And so when you're working on an adaptation, when you have this text that has existed for 45 years, that's a hell of a thing to overrule on the right, day. Exactly. But right. what the actors are doing is always the most important to me. Always the most important. And so there were times where, you know, I I worried that we were drifting a bit too far away from the text, or where I was leaning too heavily on the visual dynamic, you know, of the storytelling mm -hmm. and not allowing either the dialogue or the performances, uh, as Mr. Baldwin dictated them to rule the day. But Ultimately, you know, the clock is ticking. I mean, you know, it's shit, hell, you know. Right. You know, the clock is ticking, and yeah. you, you got to get the scene. And so at a certain point, instinct takes over. Right. Um, talk a little bit about that, just the practicalities of having to go back and recreate Harlem, which is just beautifully done with the design and everything else. Yeah, uh, our production designer, Mark Freeberg, is just old, old school, and he just knows yeah. every damn thing. I mean, he was so essential to, you know, we didn't have the budget to recreate you know, the Harlem as it was in 1974, which was a very rundown place. You know, the city had basically just given up on Harlem. They literally would not send, you know, the public waste collectors up to Harlem to clean up uh, the refuse. And so the kids would just make playgrounds out of it, you know, all these vacant yeah. lots and rusted out cars. Uh, we did as much of that as we could, but what, what I said to Mark was it was going to be a Harlem of faces, this, the landscape of faces, especially with the way James and I work with all the portraiture, yeah. uh, but also of the interiors. And one of my favorite, all these, all the interiors in this film are sets. They're all either on a stage or we found a brownstone in Harlem that was being flipped, gentrification yeah. 101. <laughs> and Mark is so smart. He's like, he's like, man, before you flip this house, we will demo it for you. And they were going to build a James Baldwin movie in it. And they will demo it after. And when you sell it, you can say a James Baldwin adaptation was made here. Yeah. And we got the deal. It was yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, and then Mark uh, brought the place uh, down to 1974 code and just brought all that patina. But my favorite is uh, Fonny's Bank Street flat, where, yeah. where Brian Tyree Henry shows up in the film and they have this 12-minute conversation. That's also on a stage. And Mark, Mark was just so particular that when they're sitting at the, the bathtub that's a dining table, mm -hmm. if you look between them, there's this crack uh, in the wall because it's a basement apartment, so the foundation is off. And Mark brought like this 84-year-old draftsman like out of retirement because he was the only one he would trust to build that crack in the wall on a set. Yeah. Because he felt like it had to have that authentic a character, you know, yeah. to represent the Harlem at the scale that we were representing it. So really awesome guy, man. I mean, my collaborators on this film were just like the best, you know. I feel really privileged to work with them. There's one of them right here. Your editor sitting right over there. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't hear her at, at any point during this discussion. Joy, stand up for the people. <laughs> Yay. Well, and, and, I, and I'll say, I'll, I'll, I'll shout Joy out because, you know, I have two editors, Joy, Joy Millen and Nat Sanders. Joy actually cut that 12-minute sequence between uh, Stefan James and Brian Tyree Henry. And 
And the, and the thing with that sequence was we shot it, you know, standard coverage, you know, mm -hmm. shot, reverse shot, all this shit. We had two cameras. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, and, and Joy, thank you for figuring it out. At a certain point, I was like, you know what? It's not, it's not good enough, you know? It's not going far enough. I, I didn't want to break the energy between those two men. So we took one camera out and put the camera on a slider. Instead of cutting between them, we started passing the energy back and forth, back and forth. We did it, what, three times, Joy? Did it three times. And so we got this 12-minute scene. Yeah. And I'm like, but make the three times be the scene and not the like 12 times that we did it with standard coverage. And she did it. So thank you, my dear. Beautifully done. Thank you, my dear. I can imagine that I can imagine get uh, an editorial kind of headache in this film, just in terms of you get into a situation because in a way you have limitless possibilities mm -hmm. because of the flashback. Mm -hmm. How challenging was that? When to go, when to, when to move, when to move left, when to move right, how to go forward, how to keep moving us forward without us feeling that we're, we're stepping back. It was extremely challenging. It was yeah. the most challenging thing about making the film, to be mm -hmm. brutally honest. Um, and it was a thing where, as you say, with most films, there is two or three ways that the movie can work. Yeah. With this one, there are like 15 ways the movie could work. Yeah. And it was about really watching Kiki, watching Tish, and, and really solidifying that the movie wanted to be framed through her, her consciousness. You know, she's essentially in purgatory, Fadi's in purgatory, and every now and then, she wants to get away from that and have these flashbacks. Um, and so it was really tricky, and it got to the point where, very late in the process, I would wake up every morning at 6 a.m. and watch the movie. Because mm -hmm. the only way to really know if this move added up to this was to watch From the entire the damn right. thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so every two hour watch, I would figure out another two minutes of the film. Mm -hmm. And it was like over the course of the last like two months of post, just like watching the entire film over and over and over again to make sure that this was the version of the film that was correct. This was the version that uh, honored the aesthetic contract with Tish. Right. Very right. difficult, man. Yeah, I bet, I bet. Um, now, a few other things. Um, I'm very jealous of your close-ups. I mean, I, I, I've Let tried to Let the record some. show that Paul uh, <laughs> Thomas Anderson is jealous of my close-up. <laughs> I say I'm done. Well, you know. <laughs> I, I think there's a long line of people that have really tried to do Jonathan Demi close-ups, and I try all the time, but I have to say, you got it right better than anybody. Thank really, you, I was so jealous. I was like, how is he doing that? Thank I've you. tried so hard. I mean, absolutely. I suppose it has everything to do with the right faces. But yeah. on top of that, I know that it takes more, a little bit more than that. Director yeah. got a little something to do with but it. I but I will say, you, when I'm casting, I am casting four faces yeah, that, right. that are open that will invite the audience in, to be honest. I think the other thing, too, is I don't try to control it. Like, I'm not directing those moments. Yeah, yeah. And what happens is I don't plan them. Myself and James, we don't plan them. But every now and then, I think there is a moment where... You know, acting is a performance, it's an intellectual thing. And so there's always a, a distance between the actor and the character. But sometimes on set, I'll just find, I'll feel this moment where the actor and the character, the distance shrinks. Yeah. And there is no space between them. And what the audience is seeing, if they're looking directly at them, is just like the soul. Yeah. It sounds like bullshit, but, but I swear. No, no, no. It's now, not. I will say, if we do like eight of them, maybe four of them will end up in the film. Mm -hmm. And so I try not to devote too much time to it. Right. But there's just this moment where I feel like the actors, everything just peels away. And all I say to them is, can you please just do the scene looking directly into the camera? Yeah. And usually there's no dialogue involved, because I think if you introduce dialogue, then the intellect kicks back in. Sure. 
And I don't know what it is. We, we never know where they're going to go right. when we shoot them. Mm -hmm. um, and we never know when we're going to do them. But I just feel like there's always a moment, especially in these last two films, where I feel like the audience needs to look directly into the eyes of the characters in order to really feel what the characters are feeling. And this woman wrote this, uh, this profile of me in the film in the New York Times. And she made an observation that just never occurred to me. And actually looking out in this room, it kind of applies to you guys. She said... You know, in these moments where we use these close-ups, when it's not like a high moment of drama, mm -hmm. you know, it's just people in repose, so to speak, that it's such an intimate look and such an intimate gaze that for people who aren't people of color, for people who aren't black, it might be the first time you've ever looked at someone for the sustained period of time in this way. And there's something very radical in that. And it never occurred to me. And she said, and if you are a person of color or a black person, you are seeing someone who you've looked at all your life but you're seeing them in a whole new way. And when we do these scenes, the idea is to make it radically immersive, where it's like not even about the fourth wall, it's just about you know, this giving and receiving. The actors on set are giving and receiving yeah. to one another. And the audience, you guys are just receiving. But when the actor looks directly at you from the screen, then you're giving back as well. Yeah. And so, never know where they're gonna go. Um, but when they work, man, they really work. Sure, yeah. And Joy and I were trying to figure out the ending of the film because the last scene in the film is the one scene that's not in the book. Mm -hmm. It's something that deep in post, I realize I need it to really close the circle of the family's journey. And the only way to get there editorially was through those two close-ups. It was the only way it would work. Without those close-ups, it just would not work. So I'm glad that we did them. The, the only one that was planned was one with Regina with the wig. Didn't tell her, but James and I knew we were gonna do it. Yeah. I want her to stare into my 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 camera forever and ever and ever. She's really, she's like it's um, well it's a way it's three D without glasses at a certain point. You know you really exactly. feel like you are getting it from and so submit by mistake by mistake we showed this in IMAX in DC uh -huh. and oh my goodness because we shot it on Lexus sixty five sure you know the aspect ratio is two by one. So if it's what they call LIMAX, which is 1.93, not 4 by 3 yeah. it's like a perfect, and, and LIMAX caps out at 2.9K, so uh -huh. we're like way beyond specs. The close-ups, Regina in the wig, oh my God, in the mirror, it's just like, yes, <laughs> yes. It's, it's, it's like human vision, I like to call it. Yes, yeah. I, uh, I'd say I it a third time just to I, see I, that. I didn't mean to rub my heart there, but I'm sorry. What else do we got? Oh God, I, we could go all night. Um, so we got Regina. Um, um, just briefly, because they're in it for two seconds. The sis, the other family, the sisters. Mm -hmm. the, come on, they're great. No, no, they're great. They're great. <laughs> and the mother, who kind, I love how she collapses in her arms. It was like, like, uh, like you know, when they would carry James Brown off, and he just couldn't, you know. No, 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 no. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, I, 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 you know, I was talking to somebody about this scene because there was a critic. Not a critic. There was a person who likes movies uh, who was like, I don't know. People are laughing at that scene. Should they be laughing? I was like, of course they should be laughing. It's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. You know? And when I'm at like family reunions and things happen, you know, the people in it are very serious, but you see aunties and uncles over the side like laughing, you know, yeah. because it's yeah. ridiculous. And I think when Mr. Baldwin wrote the sequence, he was thinking of James Brown being carried off and then throwing a cape off, you know, <laughs> because, because it is uh, as as vicious and, and brutal as some of the things that are being said, um, it's so heightened that it is ridiculous. And I think being able to step outside of it and look at it in its full ridiculousness is what, is what makes it not the be-all, end-all. You know, 
this family, these two families are going to have another sit down together. They just have to. They right. just have to. Right. Because of, as Anjanu says, that child. You know? That child, yeah. yeah. Well, her only way of dealing with it is to just create such a dramatic situation. She has no, she's, so, uh, she's got no other way to deal with it rather than cause a ruckus. Right? You know, it's, it's one of my favorite performances in the film, you know, yeah. because it's, um, it's a very complicated thing to do, uh, especially for Anjanu being a mother. Right. Uh, it was the way that character behaves. It's not a way that she felt she would behave. But we did have these long discussions about it, and we got to the same place where the only way she can process it externally, and she has to process it in the moment, she has to do something, is to just blow it all up. Right. Is to blow it all up. And, and most, most of what she's saying to Sharon, to Kiki, she's kind of saying to herself in a certain way. Absolutely. Um, it's a very, very nuanced, big, but nuanced performance. Yeah, those are the best kind, though, aren't they? I mean, I don't know. Um, just in a, in a, in a, in a pragmatic uh, talk. Wait, 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 you said that. I thought of the the breakfast scene in uh, in Phantom Thread, <laughs> right? Which is which is very nuanced, but also very loud. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I like it when things are big, but also nuanced. That's the best combination, really, because you want to get you know it's a movie after all. You want to get your money's worth. You know, we don't want to like exactly get go subtly through this. We kind of give them some some good stuff. Well, I just love because coming from Moonlight, nobody expects in the first thirty minutes to be laughing their heads off in a Barry Jenkins film. And right. That first the right. first thirty minutes. It's fucking ridiculous. You know? Yeah. But um, two, two things I want to make sure to cover is that I love, and you did it in Moonlight too, um, you just got the guts to hold on intimacy um, longer than, longer than, 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 any, than most people would. Um, and you carry us through it potentially being uncomfortable to calm and helping us calm down and showing us something that... I personally do love to see if it's done well. I mean, normally you don't want to see too much intimacy sometimes if you know, because you can feel like this is, this is fake somehow. But now twice now, you've, you've done um, incredibly long takes, incredibly long scenes of, of people in, in, in their most, absolutely most intimate um, situations. Um, Where'd you get the guts to do that? That's pretty great. I mean, it, it's because it is. It's gutsy, you know. You must. I mean, be aware I, I, of that. I have final cut, so it's what helps with the guts, you <laughs> yeah, know. Right. Um, but uh, but I think in both uh, in both films, uh, I think you're talking about the the scene in the second chapter of, of Moonlight. That's right on the beach. Uh, on the beach, and yeah. then this one when Tish and Fani first uh, yes. first make love. Um, it's just such a, especially with the way the movie's built uh, up to that point. You know, it's so rapid. You're cutting back and forth from this first date, and then with the families. All the emotions are very heightened, uh, but I think at the core of the film, it is about this girl, you know, and all of her first experiences. And to me, it was really important uh, to really illustrate how tender the romance between these two people are, um, and to honestly present a depiction of uh, a first sexual experience that was tender. Um, and to me, the way the best way to do that was to just be with her yeah. through the experience and give her the space to grow comfortable with it. And so as comfortable as the audience is, you know, as they're coming to the bed and we're in this master shot, I think you see her slowly also really settle into her body yeah. and kind of take control of the scene, right. to be honest, um, in, in a very passive way, but still she is dictating the pace. Um, now, I'll, I'll out myself about the scene, though, because the two directors talking. That whole scene could be one shot. Yeah, he, go, he gets up to go to the record player. We don't cut away. We stay with her. We sort of pan over. He's just a soft focus blob. Mm -hmm. And you don't see him put the record on. Then he comes back and he's like, it's so money. He's like coming back mm -hmm. into focus. Mm -hmm. And then he comes with her and then they go down to the bed. All mm -hmm. one shot. Mm -hmm. But then I showed it to some of my female friends who work in cinema. 
And they said, if that was a woman at the record player, you would cut to her because you'd want to objectify her. Right. Now, <laughs> if you're trying to tell this movie from a female perspective, objectify him. Right. And so we had the coverage, and so we cut. And I will say, and I'll give Joy credit here, <laughs> because Joy was like, we want to see him. We got to see him. <laughs> and, so, and, so we cut, and so we cut to Stefan with all his muscles and his tidy whities <laughs> um, <laughs> talk, talk about arguing over post. Uh-huh. <laughs> It's those tiny details. Um, yeah, you got to give the underwear some coverage. You have to at a certain point. If it's like, well, apparently, <laughs> apparently. But, but you know what? It's, I think if we did that in every scene, then it would feel indulgent. But there yeah. are very particular moments when I think it's essential to really, again, ground the audience and the experience of the characters, especially with this one, with her journey. As you, as you got them, we, we got to wrap it up. But as you, to, to back to these two actors, so you have them, you're setting them on their path. Um, are you going to rehearse with them? Are you going to let? Are you going to rehearse with them just enough? Are you not going to rehearse with them? What is the? Just give us how you set them off on you know, that. Path. You know, it's it's been my thing to not rehearse a lot. Right. It's just been my thing. Both uh, Moonlight was no rehearsal at all. This was one day of rehearsal. Mm-hmm. It's just not been my way. Just like the same way I don't storyboard. I shot list, but I don't storyboard. Uh, I used to work in advertising, and I, I used to feel like. If you had boards on set, you were working towards the boards and you weren't working towards harnessing what was happening on the day on yeah. set. So uh, very minimal rehearsal, you know, right. and it's digital. So it's like the first take is the rehearsal. It's kind of like how I like to say. Mm-hmm. And I'm always trying to feel what the actors are bringing on that day and then work from that with what I have in my head, what's in the script and just end up at the, the best place. So it wasn't a lot of rehearsal, but what happened with this film, I'll talk about Kiki in particular was Kiki is this new actress who's never been in a film. And so we surrounded her with all these veteran actors, and you can see them nurturing her through the process of understanding what it takes to be the lead in a film. Yeah. And that nurturing then bleeds over into the dynamic of the family on screen. Yeah, of course. And so it was just this really lovely, you know, the handicaps become the strengths in a certain way. The limitations become uh, uh, the strengths. And so I tried to create a really safe space for them, um, but no, there wasn't anything I could do to just like try to rigorously get them up to speed. Right, great. We have to wrap it up. Well, thank God for that trip to Europe because we got Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk. <laughs> thank you guys out of for it. coming. Barry Jenkins. Much nice appreciated. Man. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening to another DGA QA. If you'd like to hear more from director Barry Jenkins, check out episodes 63 to 65 which feature Mr. Jenkins discussing his DGA Award-nominated film Moonlight, alongside other nominees such as Damien Chazelle and Denis Villeneuve at our Meet the Nominees 2017 Feature Film Symposium. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 